Father, what a glorious truth that we will feast in the house of Zion because of what Jesus has done for us. And we praise you that as we now wait for that day, that you speak to us and you guide us by your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. And so please would you do that now. Please would you speak, encourage us, build us up, help us to be ready to live for another week trusting in Jesus. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Genesis 21, verses 1 to 21, on page 21. Now, the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes and she went off and sat down nearby about a bowshot away for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. 
he lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Well, Mark Twain famously said that the human race really only has one effective weapon. Do you know what that weapon was? It was laughter. Against the assault of laughter, he said, nothing can stand. Now, what did he mean by that? There's been some debate about that over the years. It was just a throwaway line in a novel published after he died, so nobody could ask him. But did he mean laughter is the way to overcome evil, the way to solve our problems? You know, you've just got to laugh more. In other words, laughter brings people together. It's a positive weapon against the darkness in the world. That's one possibility. The the other one is slightly different, that laughter is a deadly weapon. You know, if you want to take something or someone down, there's no need for guns or physical violence. Just laugh at them. Mock them. And you will find that far more effective. You know, physical violence might just strengthen someone's resolve to keep doing what they're doing in response because that's what people do. But no one likes being laughed at. It's a far more effective weapon. Well, which did he mean? It's hard to say, isn't it? Both are true. Laughter can be positive, it can be negative, and sometimes it's hard to know the difference. I was reading recently about when Boris Yeltsin called the US press a disaster to their face at a press conference in New York alongside Bill Clinton in 1994. And it perhaps wasn't the greatest moment for diplomacy, but Clinton famously chose to respond not with sternness or embarrassment, but by doubling over in apparently uncontrolled laughter, diffusing the tension, saving face, allowing everyone to move on without embarrassment. See, laughter is a very powerful weapon. And laughter is the key to understanding this account in the life of Abraham, which we have in front of us. After many weeks, many chapters of seeing God making these extraordinary promises to Abraham, we've seen Abraham struggle with faith. And we're told Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Ur to go to the lands that God would show him back in chapter 12, and that he would be the father of many nations. He was 75. Then a whole 15 years later, after he's heard that initial promise, God told him something more specific. A son would be born from his own body. And indeed, that son would come not from his slave girl, Hagar, but by his wife, Sarah. So the promise had got very specific, and Abraham believed God, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He was declared to be right with God, despite the fact that it was a struggle to live in accordance with what he believed. And at different times, that happened better than at other times. But still then, it was another ten years before we arrive at the beginning of chapter 21. It's a long time to wait, to trust, over a whole 25-year period that these promises have been made. And then finally, after decades of childlessness, Sarah, at the extraordinary age of 90, gives birth to a child. And so now, Abraham has 
two sons, one by his wife Sarah, the other Ishmael, who we can work out through, through reading what it says in Genesis, is 13 years old by now. And he's the son of the slave woman Hagar. And if you were here a few weeks ago, we saw the story of how Ishmael came to be born. Sarah, his wife, first encouraging Abraham to try to bring about God's promise himself by fathering a child with Hagar, remember? And then growing jealous and kicking her out of the household for the first time. We see it again in this passage. Only for God to seek Hagar out in his grace and bring her back. So before we get to Abraham... Um, facing the ultimate test with his son Isaac next time. First, we need to clarify what it is about Isaac, this son born by God's promise that makes him such good news, and what the implications are, therefore, for Ishmael, the son born by human effort, and what then the implications are for us. So let's see that then. First of all, on the sheet you can see the son born by God's promise is celebrated with laughter. The son born by God's promise is celebrated with laughter, verses 1 to 7. Look at the first two verses, you can see after all these years of waiting, what, what is emphasised in those two verses? What does it say? The Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And then he did what he had promised. And then at the very time God had promised Abraham. Do you get the point? What's, it trying to, what's, what's Moses trying to say? God can be trusted to keep his promises. This is one of the big themes of Genesis and especially of the Abraham story. If God makes a promise, he will keep it. This isn't like the bumper sticker I saw once which said this. Ladies, if a man says he'll do something, he'll do it. No need to remind him about it every six months. But the difference with God, as we've seen over and over in the life of Abraham, is that God is totally loving, totally good, totally in control, totally a God of grace who is always working for the good of his people. And therefore God's concern is not how long we have to wait and what we eventually get at the end, but God's concern is what he is doing in us as we wait. Because we can be confident he will keep his promises. So many of the promises that God has made have been kept by him already, not least with here with Abraham and Sarah, but even more wonderfully in the birth of Jesus, another miraculous child, who was God come to earth to dwell among us as a man. God kept that promise, and today he promises Jesus is coming back. There will be a day when sin and suffering and pain and death finally end. They've been defeated at the cross, and one day their lingering effects will be gone forever when Jesus returns. And it can feel at times that we're waiting far longer than we'd like to. Why does it have to be this long? Why does it have to be so painful while we wait? Well, remember, if we're trusting in Jesus, God is working in us while we wait to make us more like Jesus. And on that day when Jesus returns, there will be much rejoicing, just as there is here with Sarah, as God keeps his promises here. Verse 6, God has brought me laughter. Now, of course, there's a play on words because the name Isaac that they've given to their son means laughter. And laughter has summed up how both Abraham and Sarah responded to God's promise when they first heard it. First, it was a laughter of, this is too good to be true. 
But now this has finally actually happened. It's a laughter that says, verse 7, who would have said this? It's extraordinary. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah, aged 90, would nurse children? That's exactly right, isn't it? Who would have said? People sometimes find it hard to believe that this story could possibly be true. You know, how did someone really give birth at the age of 90? But that's exactly the point, isn't it? Who would have said that this was possible? And we know from how Abraham and Sarah reacted to the promise in the first place. They had a hard time really taking God at his word on this. This is not an everyday occurrence. This is a miracle. This is an extraordinary thing that happens, that's promised by God and then happens in their lives. Really hard to believe, and yet, ha, it happened. Now, I'm not much of a football fan, and I know there will be a range of feelings about football here. Well, one thing I do remember from a couple of years ago, as you may well do too, is Leicester City winning the Premier League title in 2016. Now, do you know what the odds of this happening were at the beginning of the season, before they played any football in that season? The odds of Leicester City winning the Premiership that year were 5,000 to 1. Okay? And some people did bet on it and uh, got incredible amounts of money from doing so. But bear in mind, okay, 5,000 to 1, you can get odds on Elvis being found alive at 2,000 to 1. Okay? And you can get odds on, the, on X-Factor judge Simon Cowell uh, being made Prime Minister at 500 to 1. Okay? So 5,000 to 1. It was never going to happen. Then, then, of course, there was Gary Lineker, who uh, tweeted. He's obviously an ex Leicester City player, he tweeted he would do the first match of the day in his underwear if Leicester City won the title. And so he duly appeared, wearing only his underpants, just as he promised. To much hilarity in the football-loving public, it was laughable to think of it happening. And when it happened, there was a lot of laughter. And it's like that here. Now, maybe for some of us this is hard to hear or it's hard to figure out what this means for us. Because you look, it's easy to read this and you think, well, you know, it's all very well for Abraham and Sarah. You know, they've got these really specific promises, but what about us? It's nice to see God keeping a special promise, a miraculous promise for them, but he doesn't seem to have done that for me. And so people today might say, well, actually, I'm struggling with infertility or singleness or unhappiness in marriage or or some other circumstance that makes us cry out in pain whether it's openly or inwardly when's God going to do the same as he did for them for me and if he's not going to well then why not but actually that's a really helpful question to think about because it gets right to the heart of how we need to read these stories and we started to think about this a little bit in the question time last week if you were here See, the the Bible is not primarily about me. It's not primarily about you. It's primarily about God and about what he's doing through the whole of history with his people. And that means we don't have a warrant to read these stories and simply read ourselves into the main characters' experiences. You know, they were blessed, so I should be blessed. That isn't what this is about. So the point of this story isn't 
God kept his promise of a baby to Abraham and Sarah, so he'll keep his promise to me of a baby or a husband or a wife or a job or whatever it might be that we're hoping for, as if God is some kind of genie in a bottle who says, you know, your wish is my command. That isn't what this is about. And here's the thing. That isn't because we get a worse deal than they got. Because that's the next thing we might feel in response to that. Well, why can't it be like this? Why can't we have what Abraham has? It's not, we don't get a worse deal. We get a better deal. Well, how can that be? Because actually this is about something even bigger than a miraculous baby. It's about God keeping his promises, which lead eventually to the birth of that other baby, of Jesus, miraculously. And all that Jesus then achieved in fulfilment of God's promises in his life and death and resurrection. And that means there is hope for the childless, for the lonely, for the struggling, and most of all for the sinner. And that's all of us. All because Sarah had a baby. It's not that God doesn't know or doesn't care about the pain of all those different things or whatever it is we might be going through. He knows the greatest pain because his son, the God-man, suffered unjustly on the cross. But this birth that we read of here was one part of the plan that he put in place to end all the pain. Do you see? There is hope for the world that transcends all of the ups and downs and joys and sorrows in ourselves and others that we deal with every day because one day Jesus will return. There will be no more sin, sorrow, suffering or sighing because we will know him in the greatest possible intimacy for eternity. So laugh with Sarah. Trust in Jesus, the ultimate son born by God's promise. That's the first thing to see here. Then, secondly, from verses 8 to 21, the son born by human effort mocks with laughter. The son born by human effort mocks with laughter. So, verse 8, the child grew and was weaned, and that would have been about the age of three in those times. And that represented a kind of watershed moment for the ability of the child to survive beyond infancy. And when you think about it, raising any child in that time would have been precarious. But for Abraham, raising this child, the stakes are even higher, aren't they? You know, this finally, after all the strife and problems, this is the one God has promised. So they celebrate when he's weaned, of course they do. They put on a party, but verse 9, all is not well in the family. And his half-brother Ishmael mocks at the party. It's the same root as the word for laughter, this word, but it has this mocking overtone. Why would he mock the son of the promise? Well, he mocks what he can't have. And Sarah's response to that is ambiguous. It's shocking at first to our ears today. It it seems spiteful. You know, how could it be right to kick this slave woman and her son out just over a bit of teasing? Come on, get over it, Sarah. And yet she does get something about Isaac, that he is different, that he is due an inheritance that goes goes way beyond anything 
physical. Because he's the son of the promise and Ishmael is not. So look at verse 11 then. This distresses Abraham greatly. He's torn between his two sons who he loves in different ways. What should he do? And there is just a, a hint here that Abraham is still struggling to believe that Isaac can really be the son of the promise. Ishmael was Abraham's solution to the problem, a son born by human effort in chapter 16. And so part of Abraham's great distress, and there's emphasis there on this great distress, part of his great distress at letting Ishmael go may well be his desire to maintain a backup plan, just in case. It's kind of belt and braces. You know, yes, Isaac's here, but he's still young, and if something happens to him, then there's always healthy Ishmael, and perhaps he could carry on the promises instead. So do you see, this isn't just about a sort of half-sibling rivalry. This is a spiritual issue for Abraham. Will he commit wholeheartedly to God's promise, or will he hedge his bets with human effort? So God steps in. Listen to your wife, he says. Because the promise is going to continue through Isaac, not through Ishmael. So you can't keep wavering, Abraham. And off they go into the desert where Hagar has been before and where she's found grace before and she finds grace now again with Ishmael and God provides for them physically in the desert because, verse 13, of the link with Abraham. And like before, we want to read this and we want to, to, to know who the goodies and the baddies are. But so often in these stories about the patriarchs in Genesis, it's not that simple. This isn't about figuring who the goodies are so that we can be like them. Were they right to kick Hagar out? Well, yes and no. It's ambiguous. It's not clear. What we're not really told is their motives. They might have had good mo- They might have had the right godly motives. They might have not had the right motives. In other words, he's not here to teach us something about what you do when you've got a sort of half-sibling situation and how you handle that. That that just isn't what this is about. It's not why it's in the Bible. In the end, what we see here is a foretaste of something that will be made clear right at the end of the book of Genesis, at the end of the story of Joseph. So you know that story, you know, the famous uh, Technicolor Dreamcoat thing that Lloyd Webber and all that sort of half get right in the musical. After his brothers have uh, left him for dead in a pit and he ends up as an insider in, in Pharaoh's palace and rescues his brothers from famine. Chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, Joseph says, but God intended it for good. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. This is how God works, do you see? In the end, it's right that Ishmael cannot inherit the promises, and it's right that if he stays around, he will prove a distraction to Abraham and prevent him from trusting God wholeheartedly. So, God intervenes. So this isn't a model for treating complicated, uh, um, blended family situations, as many do deal with today. That, That isn't what this is about. Look to it to see how we can trust That in the midst of mess, in the midst of bad decisions and foolish choices, God is still able to work for good for the sake of his promises. Do you 
You see, he did that here. He did it with Joseph. He did it with Jesus. Human beings intended the greatest possible evil as they put Jesus to death. But God intended it for good, the greatest possible good, the salvation of his people. And so we can trust that he can do that even in the midst of whatever we are facing as well. We can't stop God from keeping his promises. I think of my friend Paul, who is a pastor of a church in Cheshire. And he's a, he's a husband, he's a dad with two children at primary school, and he had a brain tumour four years ago, which they operated on and put into remission. But he just heard that it's come back. And it sounds like the worst possible news, and from a human point of view, it, it's not good news. But talk to him, and he will tell you how he and his family, through the tears, are confident that God can intend for good the things that they feel like are intended for evil. And he can even laugh with joy in the face of suffering because of a birth. Because of the birth of a saviour who died and rose from the dead so that death has lost its sting. So there are two key implications for us from this passage and each is the flip side of the other. And they're about laughter. So look, with those, look at those which of these are we? Are we going to laugh with the promised son and find freedom and security? Are we going to laugh with the promised son? Or are we going to laugh at the promised son and be cast out, still a slave? Laugh with, laugh at. And these implications aren't plucked out of thin air. They are Paul's implications from Galatians chapter 4, which we heard and read in the first reading. And actually it's part of the reading for tomorrow morning in our New Testament in the year, if you're following that scheme, as it happens. But there, Paul takes these two images of the child of the promise and the child born by human effort. And he sees how they find fulfilment in the New Testament age in two types of people. Those who believe God's promises in Jesus and are declared right with God by faith like Abraham. They're the fulfilment of the son of the promise. And then those who seek to be declared right with God by human effort and achievement. They're the fulfilment of Ishmael, the, the son born by human effort. And, and his argument in Galatians, which we can't get into right now, is that actually it's the physical descendants of Abraham of that time who are the ones who are now acting like Ishmael by turning God's law into a way of making themselves right with God. And that's a massively shocking thing for Paul to say in the middle of Galatians. But the basic point is this. The basic point for us is this. Are you laughing with the promised son? In other words, rejoicing in the free gift of salvation in Jesus, just as Abraham and Sarah laughed with joy at what they could never have brought about for themselves? Or... Are you laughing at the promised son, like Ishmael? Mocking what you can't have or don't want to have for yourself. There is a poignant picture here of what it's like to be the person who seeks to make themselves right with God through human effort. It's a life of slavery. It's a life of total insecurity. Hagar's life as a slave was totally precarious, wasn't it? At any point she could get kicked out and it happens twice and the second time it's permanent. 
And that is a picture of what it's like to try and get be right with God by human effort. And so many people think that's what Christianity boils down to, don't they? You know, here are the rules, now you need to keep them. There's no freedom in that, is there? It's utterly precarious because how do you ever know if you've done enough? There's no assurance, there's no security, only the constant threat of falling short and being kicked out. And the irony is that it's that insistence that human effort is the only way which makes those who insist on it mock the promised son and his cross. Whether it's open mocking or silent dismissal, it amounts to the same thing. How pathetic to need to rely on a saviour to save you. How weak, how feeble. Surely you don't really believe you're such a sinner that you deserve God's judgment. Does anyone really believe that today? It's a medieval idea, isn't it? It's not, not a 21st century thing that people really go for now, surely. Richard Dawkins describes the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for sin as vicious, sadomasochistic and repellent. We'll contrast that with the Apostle Paul who says at the end of Galatians, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if we ever get to the point where we're indifferent to Jesus' death on the cross, or if we're at that point now, the story of Isaac and Ishmael is saying that's a very dangerous place to be. The way to stay gratefully rejoicing in the cross, of course, is never to lose sight of how serious our sin is, never to minimise it. The reason people like Dawkins and other modern atheists hate the cross is that they believe in the end that if there is a God, which they deny anyway, well, he'd be pleased enough with the lives they lead, surely. But a Christian knows even our righteousness is like filthy rags to a holy and perfect God. The only possible response is to keep going to the cross with our sin and confession and repentance. Knowing that like Isaac, we are utterly secure because of God's promise. There will be times too when, like Abraham here, we'll be tempted to try and have both. To say, you know, yes, I trust in Jesus, but I want to reserve some room for human effort. Sometimes we do that by implying to ourselves or to others that even if it's true that the Christian life begins with faith, well, it goes on by works. You need to earn what you've been given, in other words. You know, come on, Christian, have you read your Bible today? Have you prayed? Have you talked to your friends about Jesus? Because if you are, you can be proud, but if you, if you, if you are not, you should despair. There's no security in that approach to the Christian life. There's only the constant threat of being cast out, still enslaved, like Ishmael. So laughter is a powerful weapon, and that is true in this passage too. All those who hear of it will laugh with me, says Sarah. Will you laugh with Sarah, with joy, at the gift of of God, of her offspring, at the gift in the end of her descendant Jesus, the hope of the world. The New Testament makes it clear that that invitation to rejoice with her is open not just to her physical descendants, but anyone who will trust in Jesus today. 
So let's laugh with her. Let's rejoice with her in the face of all the different circumstances of our lives. Today, this week, this year. And let's look to the God who keeps his promises. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for the good news that there is a Saviour whom we can celebrate with joy, even with laughter. Something so extraordinary, so unexpected, that the God of the universe would send his Son willingly to come into the world to die for us and to rise to bring new life to those who don't deserve it. What an extraordinary thing, Father. We rejoice in that good news that there is a saviour because Sarah had a baby and because many years later Jesus too was born. May we be those who laugh with Sarah. And we pray too that if we're not there yet, that you'd give us the clarity to see what it means to trust in Jesus in this way. So that we would not despise the idea of a Saviour needing to take our sins on the cross, but we would rejoice that He has done so. And we would rest and the security and freedom that that his death brings for us. Help us to be bringers of joy to those around us. And whatever we face in the coming days, the coming week, our eyes will be fixed on this Jesus and the security and freedom that is found in trusting simply in him. And we pray in Jesus' name.